You know, as we think about <clears throat> our hope this morning, if you're not a believer here, maybe you came with a family member or something, you might be tempted to think that hope for us is just some sort of uh, kind of concocted, vague idea, something we look to, to maybe happen, we hope it will work out, and, and this is the way that it's communicated often when we talk about hope. Uh, it tends to be something that we're a little unsure of, but we're thinking it might work out, and we really hope that it will. But for us, as we think about our hope this morning, as we sing praises to God in light of our hope, we remember that our hope is a person. Our hope is not an idea. It's not pie in the sky, but it is a person, and that hope is entirely built upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, Paul makes the case in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, uh, what silliness is the Christian hope? And so just uh, let me say to you this morning, if you're new to Christianity or you don't know the Lord, consider that our hope is not an idea, it is a person, and that person has truly risen. And would you consider that? Would you give attention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Would you give thought and meditation and prayer to that central truth of Christianity? All of Christianity hinges on this great truth that the Lord Jesus Christ has risen. And because of his resurrection, we too will be raised. And so we gather here this morning to praise this Christ who died for our sins and rose again, on the third day through whom we have eternal life. And in order to do that through instruction, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus 18, verses 1 to 27. That is the passage we find ourselves in as we go through the book of Exodus. And last week, at the end of chapter 17, we looked at Israel's first battle. When they, when they initially came out of Egypt, the Lord did not lead them into battle. He says that he would not lead them by way of the Philistines because if they see war, they at that point in their development would have said, no, 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 we are going back to Egypt. We prefer slavery over this course that God has set us on. And so the Lord does not lead them by way of the Philistines. He doesn't lead them north so that they would face war, but he leads them through the wilderness. And we know, of course, that he's going to do that to part the sea for them and to test them and all that we've been reading over the last several chapters in Exodus. But as we came to chapter 17 last week, we saw that it was time in God's providence, in God's sovereign plan, it was time for the Israelites to see battle. And they are attacked by the Amalekites. And the end result is that the Lord is victorious. Yes, Joshua must select men <clears throat> and go out to battle, but it is the staff of God held in the air that wins the battle. And really, as you picture that story, you could picture that entire story with a hand held in the air holding the staff of God. While Joshua fights, Moses is on the hill holding the staff up as a symbol that it is God who fights for his people. The people are fighting, but it is the Lord who gets the victory. The victory belongs to him. <clears throat> but, as we saw last week, Moses cannot do it alone. When he grows tired, Aaron holds up one hand and Hur holds up the other. Joshua cannot do it apart from Moses. And Moses cannot do it apart from Aaron and Hur. And <clears throat> so as we reflected on this last week, we just considered the importance of one anothering. And Trey has talked about this a lot. He talks about this in uh, our new members class as he discusses gospel community groups. So if you've come to that recently, you've heard that. This idea of one anothering. It's all throughout the New Testament. There are so many one anothering commands and references in the New Testament. And it is because we need one another. The Lord has not saved us to place us on a little spiritual devotional island so that we can just relate to God vertically and go out and live our lives. The Lord has placed us in his church. And so we are members of his body. We are part of the bride of Christ. When we become Christians, we are baptized into Christ, into Christ's 
church. And so we see pictured for us here as Joshua is out battling, looking back and seeing Moses on the hill. And as Moses is looking to the left and looking to the right, he sees Aaron holding up one arm and her holding up the other. We recognize that what we're doing here this morning is not simply coming to sing. It's not simply coming to hear a sermon. It's coming together as the people of God. And being together, praising together, learning together, growing together, and being used by God as an instrument in the lives of others. God has saved us for this very horizontal purpose. We need one another. And we ended last week with God's vengeance on the Amalekites. As Deuteronomy 25, 18 says, they attacked God's people when they were faint and weary. So the Israelites have been without water, they've been without food, and God has been testing them. First without water, God gives them water. Then without food, God gives them food. Then again without water, God gives them water. They're not in a vibrant state. This, you know, we could imagine this is the state you're in when you wake up first thing in the morning. Although people are a little different there. Some people just hop right out of bed. Kids tend to do that and they just start running. And their parents are like, oh. But it's the image of just not being ready on two feet, not being strong, faint, and weary. And Deuteronomy says that they cut off their tail, cut off the tail of the Israelites, those who were lagging behind, and they did not fear God. And so they don't attack uh, the, the fighting men. They come at the end, at the rear, and they begin to slice off the weakest of the faint. This, these are the faintest of the faint, the most weary of the weary, the children, the women, the older people, whoever it is, at the rear, they begin to cut off. And the end of it all, the heart of it all, is that they do not fear God. And so what does God do to the Amalekites? Well, after defeating them through Joshua, he places a permanent attack order on them. It is to be recorded in a book and military leaders, beginning with Joshua, are to hear it read and remember it well, that the Amalekites are to be destroyed. Chapter 17, verse 14, God will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation, verse 16. You know, it's interesting, oftentimes uh, in the culture, people talk about Christianity, they divide the Old Testament from the New Testament. They divide the Old Testament God from the New Testament Jesus And passages like this just seem distasteful. We need to remember the glory and fury of the resurrected, exalted, returned Christ in Revelation. We see Christ returns as a mighty warrior. We see Christ returning as one who slays the wicked. So let me just ask you, does your picture of God, is your your picture of God truncated? Is your picture of God only partial? Have you just adopted those passages in Scripture which say God is love and not seen and dealt with and felt the weight of those passages in Scripture that show that God is also a God of wrath, a God of judgment, a God who punishes sinners? Just as we read in Psalm 145, gracious, merciful, kind and loving, abounding in steadfast love, and a God who punishes evil doers. It reminds us that apart from Christ, there's only destruction. Apart from Christ, we have no leg to stand on. We have no plea before God. All we have is Christ, his blood, his sacrifice in our place. The grace of God is poured through and in Christ. Apart from that, there is only the expectation of divine punishment. We see that here with the Amalekites as God will blot them out. There will be war with them from generation to generation. And the effect of this first battle on the Israelites can be seen in Moses' building and naming of an altar. So we read in verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my 
banner. When God's people fight, when we fight as God's people, when we fight our spiritual battles, the Lord our God is our only rallying point and victor. When we fight Satan, when we fight temptation, when we fight all of our spiritual battles, these words must be ringing in our ears. The Lord is my banner. Apart from that, we fight in our own pitiful, pitiful, pitiful strength. Uh, Our strength, whatever strength we may have, our discipline, our resolve, our sufficiency, whatever it might be, is nothing against Satan. It's pitiful. It's weak. But in Christ we have victory. In Christ we have great strength. The Lord is our banner. And so that's what we looked at last week. And today, as we come to chapter 18, we transition from a battle to a visit. From a battle to a visit. And the title for the sermon this morning is A Family Visit. Here we see Jethro again, Moses' father-in-law Jethro, bringing with him Moses' wife and two sons, comes to visit Moses near Mount Sinai. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, this visit from Jethro, a family visit. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. Exodus 18, verses 1 to 27. This is the word of God. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. In the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So here you see Moses named his two sons based on his circumstances when he left Egypt. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife And her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord, or Yahweh, is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Notice, he asks before he gives advice. I think that's important. Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people With you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God, and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear 
God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. By the way, that description becomes a pattern throughout Scripture for the sorts of men who are selected for leadership in, among God's people. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their place in peace. Verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing and his grace over the teaching of his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this chunk, this passage, this portion of your holy scriptures. Father, we thank you that you have led us this morning in praise of your holy name and these great songs, these wonderful hymns and songs of praise, Lord, just to consider who you are, that you fight for us, that Christ is our mighty warrior king, and that our only hope in life and death is in the blood of this Christ. Father, we thank you that you have saved us. You've given us this hope. Uh, It transcends and penetrates every one of our trials, every one of our circumstances. It, It rises above, it brings our hearts above in joy all the things that happen in this life and even as we pass through the hour of our death. Father, we thank you that through Christ we have all that we need. We have all that we need in Christ. We thank you for the joy that you fill our hearts with. We thank you for uh, teaching us of your redeeming work. And Lord, how by your word you show us your character, you show us your attributes, and you call us to follow you, call us to trust you, and not to give our hearts to idols but to trust you, the one true and living God, supreme over all. Lord, would you guide us by your spirit this morning as we seek to understand your word, as we pray, Lord, that it would be clearly communicated, clearly heard, that it would be understood, and that we all would be doers of the word as we take it in this morning, realizing, Lord, that this is your food for us, this is how you grow us, This is how you sanctify us. This is how you reassure us and comfort us. This is how you instruct us. Lord, would we be malleable in your hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage describing Jethro's visit to Moses is divided into two parts. And these are going to be our two points this morning. If you're a, a note taker, you can write these down. If not, write them down in your own brain. But here they are, they're, they're up here, so really you just keep looking up here. Uh, first, the informed confession, verses 1 to 12, and then the insightful counsel, verses 13 to 27. The two parts of this passage clearly divided, verses 1 to 12, and then the latter half beginning in verse 13. So we're going to begin by looking at the informed confession, verses 1 to 12. And here, the big idea that I want you to see is that Jethro... After hearing of the Lord's mighty deeds, confesses him as the supreme God. He confesses Yahweh as the Lord over all, the king of the universe, the great and mighty God. And we see this unfolding in three stages. So these are going to be the three movements as we walk through this first point, the informed confession. So here they are, the reunion, the report, and the response, the reunion the report, and the response. So first, let's look at the reunion. And for that, let's reread verses 1 to 7. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, 
after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped. And I think the best, better tr- way to translate this is near. He was encamped near the mountain of God because they moved to the mountain of God in chapter 19. So they're still where they were. They're near the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Now we first met Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, back in Exodus chapter 2. So it's been a while since we've seen this figure. Moses has left Egypt back in chapter 2. Moses has left Egypt fleeing for his life. And he comes to a well in Midian in Arabia. So he's been on the run. He goes all the way to Arabia, and he comes to a well. At the well, he sees seven ladies. And these seven ladies, shepherdesses, are trying to water their flock. And a group of shepherds are trying to run them off. So these ladies are being bullied by a group of shepherds. And so here's Moses, the the, the great defender, the great vindicator. He he steps in, seven ladies being mistreated by... uh, an untold number of shepherds, and Moses comes in and he runs off the shepherds. He rescues the ladies from these shepherds. And these ladies happen to be the seven daughters of the priest of Midian. So probably one of the most important people there in Midian, and these seven daughters are his. And so they then go back with, eventually they go back with, he goes back with these seven daughters to Jethro. Jethro takes Moses in, and he gives him one of his daughters, Zipporah, to be his wife. And later, as Moses is tending Jethro's flock, the Lord appears to him in the burning bush and tells him to go to Egypt. So you remember, Moses has been there tending Jethro's flock for a long time. And he goes out toward where Mount Sinai is, and there he finds good pasture for his flock, for Jethro's flock. And the Lord appears to him. The Lord tells him, I am sending you to Egypt to deliver my people. And we remember there at the burning bush scene that Moses gives all of these objections. He gives all of these reasons why he's not the guy. He's not the one that the Lord needs to send. But nonetheless, the Lord sends him and Moses goes. And so the last encounter between Jethro and Moses was in chapter 4, verse 18. It says this. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And so off Moses goes. And now in chapter 18, Moses has carried out his mission. He's gone to Egypt. It's from the space from chapter 4 to chapter 18. He has carried out his mission in Egypt. He's, the Lord has used him to bring the people out of Egypt. And now he is accompanied by over 2 million Israelites. This, this would have been absolutely incredible for Jethro. I mean, absolutely mind-bending. And he sees Moses leaving. He waves goodbye to Moses there with just his wife and his two sons. And now Moses is the leader of over two million people in the middle of the wilderness. It's just, it's unthinkable. Well, it is an understatement to say that quite a bit has happened since he last spoke with Moses. Jethro has heard about the Exodus, and so he comes out to meet Moses, now that he is back in Midian at or near Mount Sinai. So Moses and the Israelites are now in Jethro's country. And remember what the Lord had told Moses. When he called him, he said, this will be a sign to you. You will return to this mountain and worship me. Remember that the burning bush is in the vicinity of Mount Sinai. And so the Lord tells Moses, you will go to Egypt, you will bring the people out, and you will return to this mountain to worship. Well, the mountain is in the area of Midian. And so now Moses is in Jethro's backyard, so to speak, with millions of Israelites. 
probably the most obvious question that arises from these verses, is why are Moses' wife and two sons with Jethro? Uh, we're just given this little comet here, and we're not told anything about it. And so really, we, we have to just read between the lines and try to figure out what's going on here. Verses 2 to 3, it says, Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. And so uh, Jethro comes not alone, not with an entourage, but with, and probably there are other people with Jethro for sure, but Jethro comes with Moses' wife and two sons. Why are they with Jethro and not with Moses? So it raises a few questions for us. Did he, did Moses send them home before he went into Egypt? Did they only accompany Moses to the border? So they go with him on the journey. Maybe there are some other people with Moses. Jethro has sent. They're going with Moses all the way to the border of Egypt. And then Zipporah and the two sons turn around and go back because Moses has to go into Egypt and do this alone. And some have argued that there was tension between Egypt and Midian. And so by Moses going into Egypt with Midianites, it would have been a problem. It would have complicated his mission. If that is the case, did he send them home because of that political reason or because Zipporah was angry with him over the circumcision of his son? So you remember right before this, uh, they, Moses arrives in Egypt, we have this, this scene where uh, God comes to kill Moses because he hasn't circumcised one of his sons. And Zipporah circumcises him, and she seems angry with Moses about the whole thing. So was that the point where her anger led to Moses just saying, you go home, you go back to Jethro for now? Or has Moses simply sent them back for their own safety before he is to face off against the Egyptian Pharaoh? Or, on the other hand, did they accompany Moses into Egypt? And Moses sent them to Jethro after they crossed into Midian. And so the picture there is that Moses went into Egypt with his wife and with his two sons. And the whole story of the plagues occurred and the crossing of the sea. And then as the Israelites begin to come into Midian, Moses sends his wife and two sons to Jethro. Well, the reason I give you all this more and more and more is because there's actually quite a bit of debate on this question. Uh, You can go and read on it if you're interested. But I'm inclined to think that Moses' family did accompany him to Egypt. I'm inclined to think that they did experience the plagues on Egypt and pass through the Red Sea. One of the points that John Calvin makes is that uh, Moses would not have had it where his sons, his own sons, were not delivered with the Israelites coming out of Egypt, participating in the Exodus and going through the Red Sea. So, it seems to me that they have now been sent to Jethro. They have reached Zipporah's country, and Moses has sent her with her two sons to his father-in-law. She has told him about the exodus, and now he is coming to greet Moses, along with Moses' wife and sons. And verse 7 describes this happy reunion and the respect that Moses shows his father-in-law. So look at verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And one thing to notice here with Moses is the respect that he shows his father-in-law. You know, I I just think this is worth saying. Uh, Obviously not the point of the text, but this is a, a moment to say this. Is I think that it speaks to us in terms of how we relate to our spouse's parents. Uh, You know, the way that we are to relate to our spouse's parents is the same as we are to relate to our own parents. When we become married, we are joined into a one flesh relationship with our spouse. And that means that in truth, our spouse's parents become our parents. And so the honor and the respect that we show them is the honor and respect that we show our own parents. So just a consideration, you know, it's often talked about that uh, there's this sort of war, this tension between spouse and the in-laws. But that's for the world, not for those who name 
the name of Christ. Those who follow the Lord. Those who understand what biblical marriage is. Those who honor their father and their mother from the heart. Those who keep the righteous requirement of the law from the heart because they have a circumcised heart. We honor our father-in-law, our mother-in-law. So we see first the reunion, second the report. Look at verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So we've looked at the reunion. Now we come to the report. We don't know how much Jethro has heard already. Uh, And we don't know whether he has heard it from his daughter, depending on whether she went back before or after. We don't know whether he has heard it from his daughter or he has heard it from uh, local nomads and others who have come through and just been uh, witnessing some of these things. And the news has spread. We don't know how much he knows and where he has heard it from, but he appears to have a basic knowledge of the Exodus. So verse 1 says, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, this is important. Notice how this is worded. He had heard, and listen carefully, of all that God had done. Do you see that? And then he had heard how the Lord had brought Israel. Israel out of Egypt. These are active verbs, and the subject of these verbs is God. It is Yahweh. So, that we, so we know that whatever Jethro has heard, it is entirely theocentric. It is not man-centered. It is not Moses-centered. It is not Israel-centered. It is God-centered, centered on God. What he has done. And let me just submit to you, when we talk of our salvation, when we talk of the whole complex of Christianity, when we talk about the biblical meta-narrative, the great story of Scripture from beginning to end, we are talking about the Lord's deeds. We're talking about what God has done. There will be no people in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, celebrating and declaring their own great deeds. None. There will be praising eternally of what God has done. So this is theology 101. This is ethics 101. And Jethro's got that at least in place. He understands that the Lord did a great work. But now... Jethro gets to talk to Moses. So whatever he knows, he knows obviously quite imperfectly. If anyone is able to give a detailed report of what God has done, it is Moses. And so he tells him, and a recurring word throughout this section is deliverance. How the Lord had delivered his people. How God had rescued his people. The story of the Bible is the story of salvation. The story of Christianity, the message of Christianity is the message of great rescue. God saves sinners. God rescues his people from their enemies. For us, we recognize our enemies. Sin, the flesh, death, hell, the devil. God, through Christ, has delivered us from them all. What Yahweh did to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, this is partially what Moses conveys to Jethro the confrontation between Moses or between the Lord and Pharaoh, the plagues that God brought down on Egypt, the destruction of the Egyptians in the sea, and what Yahweh has done for Israel as they have faced hardship. And notice that Moses doesn't gloss over the hardship. He doesn't gloss over the fact that the Israelites have met Hardship, But hold on a second. If God is with them and God is great, why would they face hardship? God's greatness does not preclude our own suffering. We know that the Lord brings us through many trials and persecutions. As 
but God has brought them through all of these hardships, parting the sea, transforming undrinkable water, leading them to an oasis, providing a feast followed by daily bread, bringing abundant water out of a rock, and defeating the Amalekites. Those are the various stones that we have crossed, as, that we've stepped upon as we have come across this river, as, we, as we've come across to chapter 18. All these wondrous things that the Lord has done. Israel has faced hardship, but the Lord has delivered his people. So in short, what is the message to Jethro from Moses? It is the glory of the Lord. It is the glory of God. That is what Jethro comes face to face with as he talks with Moses. And I would think that this conversation was much like what we read in Psalm 145. If you could go into that tent and you could grab a seat next to Moses talking to Jethro, I think you would hear the sorts of things that we hear in Psalm 145. Let me read to you verses 3 to 6. Great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. So you imagine Moses sitting there talking to Jethro for hours probably, describing all of this and just busting out into praise, much like Paul does as he writes Romans. Some have said that this was the first go at the book of Exodus, that the Lord used this opportunity for Moses to gather in his mind and articulate in his mind the various things that had happened. And what we read up to this point in Exodus is essentially what Moses articulated to Jethro, these mighty deeds of the Lord. Let me say this to us, something that we may not recognize This is what happens every time we open our Bibles. I want you to think about that casual Bible reader. Think about that, anyone who is neglecting the Bible, who has the Bible sitting up on a shelf or or just doesn't mess with the Bible really. Very often, every once in a while, you just read a little bit of the Bible or read the Bible without prayer or read the Bible for information only. Every time we read the Bible, we are like Jethro hearing from Moses. We are sitting and listening to God's wondrous deeds. We are filling the weight of God's glory every time we open the Bible. Every word we read, glories untold, riches untold, there before our Faces, the great mysteries of God, his redemptive plan, his character, his attributes, his love for us, what he has delivered us from and saved us for. Every time we open our Bibles, it is like we are listening to Moses there in the tent. And so we can see why Satan wants to do everything he can to keep us out of the Bible. Do you recognize that? The greatest battlefields in our spiritual warfare is to stay in the Bible. It's to stay in God's Word. It is to keep God's Word going into our eyes, into our minds, into our ears, into our hearts, into our prayers, and into our deeds. It's the greatest battle we face as Christians. Look at your own life. Think of it. Satan will do all that he can to hurry you and busy you and fill you with distractions so that you simply will not prayerfully, meditatively read his word and see his glory. Because that's the power. That's the power we have as Christians. So we've seen the reunion, we've seen the report, and now thirdly we come to the response. How does this foreigner... This Midianite priest respond to Moses' report. Look at verses 9 to 12. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. And that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord 
who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. We can summarize Jethro's response with three, with three words. Joy, praise, and sacrifice. He rejoices. God's glory is his joy. How delighted he he is to hear of the Lord's salvation. How delighted he is to hear of what God has done for his daughter, his daughter's husband, and his grandchildren, and his great and great and great grandchildren. He praises God for his salvation. And then he brings forward sacrifices and eats in fellowship with God. God's people. Here he identifies himself with the people of God before the presence of the Lord and Israel's leaders. At the heart of this response is a confession. And we read this confession in verse 11. And this is why I've entitled the first point, the informed confession. It is a confession of who God is, and it is based on the revelation of God that he has heard. And let me just say this to us. Revelation comes before confession. Our religious beliefs, our trust in God is not something that just comes out of our own imagination. It's not something subjectively brought forward. We respond to revelation. God reveals and we respond. God shows us who he is and what he has done. And it is only in response to the revelation of God in scripture that we can confess rightly and turn to God and praise God and rejoice in God. The revelation brings the confession So let me just say this also, wherever there is sin in our lives, it is through reading God's word that that sin will be exposed. It is through reading God's word that the the power from the Spirit will come for us to confess those sins, to lay down those sins, and to turn from them. The power of the word of God, the power of his revelation. Verse 11 Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. This is his confession. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. The Egyptians, in the name of their gods, arrogantly asserted themselves over the Israelites. But what did God do? We read it in chapter 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. This is speaking of the 10th plague. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Who is God? Yahweh. Who is supreme? Yahweh. Who alone is worthy of worship? Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. He is the true God. He is the sovereign king. And what Ever unseen powers exist. And you get this blending as we think about gods in the Old Testament and and demons as they're understood in the Bible. There are unseen powers all around us. The nations bowing down to demons, worshiping false gods. Whatever unseen powers exist, the Lord is over them all. That's Jethro's confession. Over all the gods that Jethro had worshipped as a Midianite, over all the gods of the peoples that he had seen in the ancient Near East, over all the gods of Egypt, the Lord is over all spiritual powers and all so-called gods. So that's the informed confession. Now we come to the insightful counsel, very practical passage. Look at, uh, well, first... Let me say that this latter half of the chapter can be divided into two parts. Wise advice and wise listening. So let's look at each of those. Wise advice and wise listening as we come to a close this morning. First, wise advice. Look at verses 13 to 23. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing... 
for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Keep in mind, Moses is 80 years old. He's over 80 years old. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me and inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one another, I mean one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what, are you, what you are doing is not good. That's pretty bold. But he's honest. By the way, you know, that's what we want in our lives. Honest friends. Honest counselors. People who don't just tickle our ears. Just tell us what we want to hear. What good is that? What good is it to be surrounded by people who pat us on the back and tell us precisely what we want to hear? No good. He tells him what he needs to hear. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times." Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier, easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Here we get a little, a little more information into what Moses does all day. What is Moses' job in the wilderness? What is he doing? We see these little highlights, right? We get the highlights, but we've got all these days, and we've got all these hours in the day, and all these minutes in the hour. What is Moses doing? What sort of daily tasks take up his time? Well, the first thing we need to see is that it is a long day. His day is a long day. This 80-year-old man has very long Work days. From morning until evening, he sits and judges the people. A summary of his daily work as judge is given in verses 15 to 16. This is how Moses sees his responsibility and his task. The people come to me to inquire of God. So he's a mediator, a, a revelator. He brings God's word. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And so revelation, arbitration, and instruction. This is what occupies Moses' time. And by the way, we're not told all the ways that God is anticipating Sinai and giving his law to his people. We know that the Sabbath command has already come. And, and so God is already revealing the laws that he's going to reveal at Mount Sinai. And so we're meant to understand here that as all the interpersonal, 2 to 2.5 million people, you can imagine, all the interpersonal disputes, all of the conflicts, all of the issues that arise, Moses is, is anticipating the law of God as he instructs the people, as the Lord leads him and gives the revelation through him. And here's Jethro. He's just watching. His father-in-law watching this unfold, thinking to himself, I got to go home, <laughs> probably wanting to get out of this scene, but thinking to himself that, he, that what Moses is doing is not good. It is not efficient, practical, helpful, workable, durable. It will not work. So he tells Moses that this will wear him and the people out. He cannot do this alone. So he proceeds to give Moses advice. And this is what he tells him. To break the people down into units. To select pious, God-fearing, capable, trustworthy men. Men of good character. To oversee and settle disputes in those cases. These will act as judges among the people. The bigger, more difficult cases can come to Moses, but the rest will be handled by others. And the result of all of this is what we read in verse 22. So it will be easier for you, 
and they will bear the burden with you. The burden will be borne by all of the judges, not just by Moses. Moses' focus is given in verses 19 to 20. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. So Moses' focus moving forward will be revelation and instruction. Those things will take priority over arbitration. So all the little disputes that are going on, those are going to be handled on a different level. Moses' role here is revelation and instruction to convey God's truth to his people and to instruct them in the way that they are to walk. So what does Moses do? The answer is that he wisely listens. So look at verses 24 to 27. He wisely listens. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses... But any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Jethro's work is done. God's purpose for Jethro in this situation is over. So Jethro returns to his home country. It is important to keep in mind that Jethro doesn't give this advice, and Moses doesn't receive this advice apart from the Lord. This is not just advice on a human level that's divorced from God and you just go out and do what is pragmatic, what works, what is practical. We know that is not the case because of what is said in verses 19 and 23. Verse 19, now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. In other words, this has to have God overseeing it. This advice has to pass muster with the Lord. God be with you. In verse 23, if you do this, God will direct you. God overseeing the implementation. You will be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. And so here we see that God is at the center of it all. None of this advice is to be followed apart from the Lord's blessing. So as we close this morning, I just want to draw out some practical takeaways from this latter part. It's a very practical passage. You have uh, advice being given. You have Moses listening to this advice from his father-in-law. And so I just want to take a, a moment here to draw out a couple of practical takeaways for us as we encounter the end of this passage. And the first one is that the Lord, any type of organization is going to grow in its organization. It's going to grow in its structure. You know, I've talked to people over the years who uh, have, uh, they take issue with organized religion. And even among Christians, any time what the church is becomes less organic and more organized, it seems to be a bad thing. It seems to be something that just doesn't really square with God's truth. But here we recognize that, that the church of God, for example, must be overseen in an organized, structured way. An organic mentality with church and people just sort of doing what they need to do and there not being any structures or or policies or procedures or any of that. It sounds nice. The problem is it just doesn't work. It's an unwise way to steward God's resources. And we must remember that ultimately it's a matter of stewardship. Moses has a stewardship to steward the people of God. And in that, he receives this advice to better steward, to better shepherd. And it involves necessary structure. It involves necessary accountability and organization. So that's a first practical takeaway. A second is delegating. We see here a point on leadership is that it is pride that says I have to do it all, right? It's pride and fear. Pride and fear says I've got to do it all. 
I'm not giving this responsibility to anybody else. I've got to do it all. And it's because we're afraid that if we let go of it, it'll fall apart. And of course, we recognize that that is ultimately built on pride. Because as long as we hold it, as long as I hold it, it will be great. But when I give it to someone else, well, it could very easily just fall apart. Well, the truth is, from Ecclesiastes, everything does tend to fall apart. But that doesn't mean that we don't hand off responsibility and that we don't pridefully hold on to it ourselves. So delegating... Thirdly, and most obviously, receiving counsel. Proverbs 12, 15, which was our call to worship, says this. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. One of the ways you can know if you are a fool is if you do not heed the advice of others. If the Lord in his providence is piling up advice for you from other people and you don't listen, that is the definition of a fool. This is the way of the fool. And it is the way of pride. Back to pride. Moses was humble. The Lord had humbled Moses' heart. Moses was humble before the Lord. He recognized that everything he had accomplished, everything he was doing was because of the Lord. And it was out of humility, a small view of self, that he was able to receive the counsel of others and not pridefully beat his chest in his own wisdom. That is the way of a fool. Taking advantage of God's means. You know, God doesn't just float answers down out of heaven. He doesn't send angels to come to our front door and we open the front door and we have a package there waiting on us and we open it up and it tells us all that we're to do in life. All that we we need to move forward in and the right answers and the yes or the no. No, God uses means. He uses others. He uses circumstances. His providence oversees all the means. And in this case, what we are meant to recognize is that the Lord God of Israel used Jethro as a means of helping his people. We are to take advantage of God's means in his providence. And finally, I think we see here that it is important for us to recognize common grace. The Lord has graced humanity. He has made all of us in his image. And sometimes, in certain circumstances, the best advice we get may come from outside of those with whom we worship. Here we see this foreigner, this Midianite priest totally unrelated to Israel, apart from now, he has come into the fold. And I think we are meant to understand that this advice comes after his confession. And so he's giving this advice as someone who has bowed the knee to the Lord. We need to note that. But what's important is, this is advice coming from Midian, as it were. This is not advice coming from within Israel. This is an unlikely place from which to receive counsel. And nonetheless, Moses sees the wisdom of it under the Lord, and he listens, and he implements. So we recognize in all of this, in this story, God's hand. Uh, We saw the Lord, through the staff, defeat the Amalekites. We saw the Lord, through Moses hitting the rock, bring water. And now we see the Lord providing wisdom for his people through Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. In many ways, what we encounter in chapter 18 is just another instance of God's provision for his people. This time, it's not their sustenance, but it is their organization. It is the judging of their cases. It is the wisdom and the governance that they need. The Lord looks after all of our cares, big and spiritual, obviously spiritual, and small. God cares for all the aspects of our lives, and it is to him that we go in prayer And it is under his sovereign providence that we operate with wisdom and grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you have given us here these sound words. Sound words about your glory. Sound words about practical living.
living in your world under your care. And Lord, we we see what it looks like to lead and, and to be humble. What it looks like to believe in other people to help us. Lord, what it looks like to hear counsel and to operate out of not out of our own pride. Father, we pray for your grace in these things. We pray that we would see your glory in your word and confess out of your revelation. And Father, we pray that we would live wisely, taking advantage of the means which you provide. Lord, would you be with us now as we enter into the Lord's Supper? We thank you for this spiritual sustenance that we have before us. We pray that our hearts would be lifted up to worship you, to confess sin, to turn from sin, and to rejoice in the hope that we have in Jesus. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.